Welcome to the 48th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg, and our co-host with the most, as always, is Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Happy birthday, Vicki. Thank you so much, and it's great being here, as always. Today, we're talking with Dr. Brian Tissot, a surfer, writer, professional marine ecologist, and for seven years, the director of the Humboldt State University's Marine Lab in Trinidad. That's a fishing town in Northern California, almost 300 miles north of San Francisco. There are over 150 marine labs just in the United States, training the next generation of marine scientists. Before Humboldt State, Brian worked at the University of Hawaii and Washington State University. Along with studying coral reefs and other habitats now at risk, he's also had a front row seat to the recent decline of Northern California's kelp forests. We're not doing his research off of boats or in tiny submarines, Brian also finds time to surf and recently wrote his first science fiction novel, Songs of Thalassa. So, Brian, let's start with an important question. What's it like to go from surfing the warm waters of Hawaii to the frigid seas of Northern California? Um, it's quite a shock, and it's pretty difficult to do for me these days. I actually grew up surfing in California, so I'm used to cold water. But, you know, once you get used to that tropical clear water it's it's tough you know hawaii is such an idyllic place for surfing but i still do it you know california is worth it there's some great waves here and it's my home state so you know i've always loved the ocean and my dad was a naval aviator so we moved every two and a half years and uh you know even though we went to the west coast and different places i mean east coast different places we mostly keep coming back to california and i was always near the water so we always went to the beach my mom was an avid beach goer and I just made that connection really early that I just loved the, the ocean and walking in and swimming. And she wouldn't let me surf till I was 13. So I had to wait, you know, and that was 1970. And I was at, from there, it was no turning back. It was you know, literally at least the first two decades. That was my life, everything until marine biology just came, you know, naturally. I think once you're in the water and you're interacting and you see the marine life and the that, so that was a big inspiration for me to become a marine biologist, my love for the ocean. I started surfing, I think I was 13. And uh, so I totally get that. But um, in reading more about you, Brian, you indicated that you were very influenced by your parents and that you were primarily raised by your mom because your dad traveled so much. How did she really influence you? You just seem to be so heartfelt connected with her. Yeah, well, she was a, a very soulful woman and a very wise woman. And she uh, just encouraged me to think big and dream and, and go after things. You know, you may not get them, but if you don't try, you're never going to know. And so she always pushed me to, to do something that made a difference in the world. And that's really what my whole life has been about. Um, you know, and my dad was gone most of the time, but he was also just a huge icon and a leader. He retired as a rear admiral. You know, at one point he was the captain of the USS Enterprise, and I got to ride the ship back when I was 15 from Hawaii to San Francisco, which is incredible experience. So all of that kind of coalesced to, to really motivate me to, to make a difference in the world. You know, the military contributions, my mom's contributions, and uh, and then being near the water. And uh, yeah, so they were a huge inspiration. It was that sense of service from the military, and and yet that love of the ocean and. Um, so, so you went to college thinking marine biology? Well, uh, to be honest, uh, when, when I graduated from high school, I wasn't really that excited about college, but I ended up going to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo because 
The waves were so good. That's honestly why I went there. I, that was the place I picked. But, you know, I started surfing, and after a year or so, you know, uh, you know, the story is actually uh, my the marine biology professor for Cal Poly picked me up hitchhiking and told me just to take his classes because I didn't have the prerequisites. And that's really just what changed my life, an incident like that. And uh, then I, I never turned back. Well, it, it goes with what we were just talking about. And thanks for asking that. As, you know, after I would surf, I would just hang out at the beach like most people and kind of wait for the wind to die down. And the abalone where I lived near San Luis Obispo were all over the place. And so I started exploring them and looking at them. I was fascinated. And that was really my first hook into science. And so I did a bunch of projects as an undergraduate. My master's thesis was on the abalone, and most of my dissertation was on abalone. And, uh, you know, part of that was, as you may know, black abalone are on the endangered species list right now. And that's because back in the 80s, in the middle of my dissertation, they just started dying. And that's one of the things that really pushed me into conservation biology and trying to preserve them. And now I'm on the recovery team trying to you know, figure out how we can bring them back. But that was my early inspiration into science. Uh, and, you know, I love them. They're just great, fascinating animals and, uh, you know, kind of a hook to, to what's exciting about marine biology. We, we did an earlier show on uh, the recovery of the white abalone and the scientist who's working on that. So what you went to the University of Hawaii was your first teaching gig? Right. After I got my PhD at Oregon State, I was so lucky to get a job in uh, University of Hawaii in Hilo, uh, which I really loved. It was a fantastic place. And, you know, it's a marine biologist and surfer's dream. I just, I couldn't believe I'd done that. And it was wonderful. I, the people there are so fantastic. I love teaching to the diverse audiences and I learned so much from my students, many of which I'm still in touch with today. And some of them uh, have gone on to fantastic careers, you know, including a few native Hawaiians and uh, some Pacific Islanders and, and people that I really had the pleasure of having in my classroom. It's a, Fantastic place, but it also started my research on coral reefs, which continues to this day. Recent studies say 50% of the coral reefs have died since I was born and 14% just in the last decade. So uh, you started studying coral and you were seeing what? Well, when I first started studying coral reefs in Hawaii, they were really in good shape, you know, and and uh, except for human impacts in, in some places. And that was what we really focused on early on, primarily the aquarium trade. But, you know, early on, there was also some issues around boat moorings where they were throwing anchors in the corals. And and in West Hawaii, where I work, mostly Kona Coast, um, you know, th those were addressed. And we've been doing research on primarily the aquarium trade for almost 30 years, as really trying to help get that to a sustainable, as a sustainable fishery. Aquarium trade is where people are taking tropical fish out of the wild and selling it to uh, people who collect saltwater aquariums. Right. When you buy those fish in Petco, especially yellow tangs, those are often from Hawaii and they're live caught off of coral reefs. And uh, a lot of people don't know freshwater fish are mostly cultured, so it's not much of an issue. But these are, you know, directly impacting reefs. So we kind of we looked at that. You know, we published actually over 30 papers on the aquarium trade alone and uh, really, I think, helped make a difference for how we understand and, and manage that. But the corals were all pretty decent for most parts until about the 90s when we started having these bleaching events and you know it was just tragic to go swimming out on a reef when you see 
all these white coral heads kind of popped up. Uh, that was in 96, and they did recover a lot from that. But then we've had these the events are becoming more frequent. They're becoming more severe. And, and this is in Hawaii, which is not super tropical, right? It's about 20 degrees north. So it's fairly kind of, you know, subtropical. But yet we're still seeing it. And, of course, it's happening globally, and it's just really tragic. And because it's tied to global warming and climate change and ocean acidification, things that we really aren't addressing well on the planet, as both of you well know. Right. And, and warming waters is what drives the bleaching. Right. Yeah, they just can't handle over a certain temperature their symbiotic algae, the ones that really provide nutrients for them because they live off of sunlight because the animal corals are animals, right, which also eat. But when they abandon the coral, when it gets too warm, the coral loses a big part of its nutrition. And over time, if that doesn't reverse quickly and it hasn't been, um, they simply die. Right. And the symbiotic algae also uh, are colorful. So that gives the coral colors. So they, it's basically their white bones that are exposed then. You got it. That's right. And, you know, sometimes it gets recolonized. Sometimes it doesn't. And, uh, you know, but the frequency is what's really, you know, is, is scary. You know, these heat waves that are coming in and moving all over the country, which we really didn't understand even 10 years ago are, uh, you know, quite frightening in terms of their impact to not just coral reefs, but kelp forests and polar seas and all sorts of, of uh, ecosystems. Yeah, and it's not just the country, too. It's it's really the whole world, Absolutely. reefs around the world. And that was my next question, is, is these warming waters are um, not just evenly warming around the planet. They're actually these uh, marine heat waves and when you got to Northern California, we've had uh, the recent warm blob, they called it. Maybe you could talk about that. Yeah, I mean, when I first moved here to Humboldt, that was in 2013, it was, you know, a really uh, great kelp forest and everything was in good shape. But literally the next year we had that event and that just tells you how we understood heat waves. We didn't know what it was. So Noah called it the blob. And it, it was one of the early heat waves on the West Coast and it, it really, devastated the Northern California kelp forests, which are mostly bulk kelp. It's different than a lot of other California where you have giant kelp, which is a perennial. Bulk kelp comes in every year and grows, and it's really sensitive to, it needs nutrients. It's one of the fastest growing plants in the world. It can grow a foot a day uh, and sometimes even more. And so without those nutrients, which is what comes in with cold water, the warm water environment, it just fell apart. And then urchins, which normally are kind of happy because they're being fed, they come out, they're looking for more food, and they kind of mowed down everything else. And that was on top of the sea stars, which are one of their main predators, the sunflower stars up here, had died from mass mortality in 2013, as you may know, the, the whole uh, sea star wasting disease. Right. So the sea stars predate on the urchin. So this is how you had the urchin right. explosion. The sea stars died from a virus that scientists in Southern California said was supercharged by the warming water. So it's a feedback loop. So all of these things are related to climate change and they're coming together in ways we, we never thought about. And that's what's very difficult to, to, to know what to do. Yeah, it seems like there's always something tragic that is happening. And, and with that, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about your research with bottom trawling and uh, what you have been able to understand and really experience 
with your research. Can you talk about that and how that is um, attached to a central fish habitat? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very similar to um, to the kelp forest situation in that we were causing a lot of destruction from our activities to the seafloor through trawling, which was a very predominant feature of fisheries, mostly in the late in the 1990s and early 2000s. As you may know, the NOAA declared rockfish, which is the primarily fish that's trawled, uh, a failure in the year 2000, and they had to rebuild the stocks. And one of the things was they didn't understand what they were doing to the seafloor. You know, they don't see it. So I was fortunate enough in actually in the late 80s and early 2000s to go out with Mark Hickson and a few other great scientists. And, you know, and we actually did videotapes of these areas, both where they had trawled and where they hadn't trawled. And of course, the difference was stark. It was literally like an old growth redwood forest versus a, a grassy plain with stumps. And uh, it just, you know, that's what trawling does. It's very destructive. It's very generalized. You get a lot of bycatch. And they were destroying a lot of these really important habitats. And so over time, working with the other groups, mostly Oceana and uh, Ecotrust and Pew Oceans, they helped, you know, pioneer some plans that were adopted by the Fishery Council to protect some of these habitats. And that's really uh, ultimately what we ended up doing. So some places are now off limits because we understand these are places you want to protect, but they still are trawling in quite a few areas. And mud areas are a lot more resilient to those kinds of things. So that's kind of what we've learned and, and where it's gone since then. But Talk about what you do at a marine lab in terms of how you get out there and, and discover these situations. Well, um, yeah, marine lab, and you said there's a whole bunch of them. There's a, you know more than two, several dozen across the West Coast alone. Um, great hubs for activity. So, you know, our HSE, which is a relatively small university, we have a, a full-on lab, which has a wet lab where you can raise and culture animals and learn a lot of science about that. We also have a, a lot of boats to get in the water. You mentioned the Coral Sea. That's our 90-foot research vessel. We can take that out with an ROV and go down underwater and, you know, do all sorts of studies about trawling. Right now, we're gearing up for a lot of studies on wind energy, which is coming into Humboldt. And then we have smaller boats, mostly like uh, Boston whalers and things that we use for scuba diving. And that's how we get out to the North Coast kelp forest. And so the lab is really kind of a hub of marine infrastructure that allows the students primarily, because they do most of the work. I mean, I get a grant, and but they're the ones that go out and do it. And uh, to go out and do all these different habitats that we talked about, the shore, reefs, uh, kelp forest, and it's just fantastic and a great place to learn. And, and we're also making huge discoveries that, that are really important. There's a uh, picture of you in the lab brochure and a little looking like homemade submarine. Tell us what that's what that was. There's a, a lot of small kind of hobby subs that are coming out now, which you can actually buy and build kits, right? And so we have some of those where we have actually done that. And what's great is the students can be involved. And then you go out and you kind of demonstrate what it's like, like off of a dock or a pier and take videotapes and things and show them. And of course, the big ones, you know, and, and Vicky knows this really well. Those are big and they involve a lot of people and you have to have expertise to operate those. And we do have two ROVs at, at HSE that we use regularly. So that's a the labs really open up a huge opportunity and they're networked across the entire West Coast. So people move around and they go to different places depending on what they're studying. Mm -hmm. But so, you've also been in a man submersible. And what was that like? 
Yeah, uh, fantastic. I mean, I was I've had the pleasure. It was this was the uh, Delta, which is basically in 1988. The first time I went out with that was Hecate Bank, Oregon, where we did a lot of this early trawling studies, and then up until the marine protected areas were established in California, I was fortunate to work with Mary Yakovich, the NOAA, Rick Starr at Moss Landing, and do a lot of diving on the marine protected areas right when they were being established. So then we can see how you know, fish and vertebrates and other things have responded to these kinds of levels of protection. In fact, we're, I'm part of a big group now of deep sea scientists, and we just are publishing kind of a review of all the data from all the MPAs that have been done. And this is a Cal Fish and Wildlife is now reviewing that report, but it should be out pretty soon. So Brian, I know that you've done a lot of work with the MPAs and also looking at the MPA networks. Can you tell us why those networks are important and the benefits of MPAs? Yeah, you know, MPAs are a really important conservation tool in the marine science. Not the only one, but certainly one that has proven over and over through literally hundreds of studies across the world that if you close an area and you allow the stocks to build up, they have benefits that you don't normally see. One is we have we have a picture of what the ocean looks like without human impacts, which is tells us what the world should look like. And that's really important. But secondly, it also actually helps seed areas outside of it. And that basically is like having money in the bank. You know, you leave the principal in a marine protected area, but the interest flows out and you can spend that all you want. So it's a great way of promoting sustainable fisheries. It protects habitat. It protects important areas that we really value. Things like Point Lobos, Cape Mendocino, a lot of the Channel Islands. And so, and, and they've been shown through many studies almost everywhere to be quite effective. And some of the most successful are, uh, of these marine protected areas are bottom up where fishermen in the Philippines and Puerto Rico and even Port Orford, Oregon, um, initiated the process, recognized that they were losing what they had before and that this was one tool to protect them. Yeah, well, in fact, one of the MPAs, uh, Redfish Rocks in Oregon, was initiated by the city um, uh, Port Orford and the fishermen there, they really wanted to see if this would work. And, you know, they're still studying it. We'll see. It's only been uh, about eight years and rockfish grow pretty slow, but uh, very supportive. Hawaii was like that too. People really wanted these marine protected areas to kind of push the ornamental trade away from some of the conflict with swimmers and, you know, dive tourism and things like that. And so we came in and, you know, in a public meeting, we had 99% of the testimony was positive, which is really rare for a marine protected area. So, yeah, you're right. When a community wants it, it's, it's really effective. It helps a lot. So as the oceans are changing rapidly today, do you find uh, attitudes of, of the students at the marine labs are changing in terms of their sense of why they're going into this field or what they hope to Oh, achieve. absolutely. I mean, the students just this semester, my marine biology class are all so motivated to make a difference in the world, to go out uh, and, you know, try to educate people about what's going on. I think that's the most important thing. A lot of people don't know about how people's actions can harm the ocean. You know, things like climate change and plastics and, you know, just walking in the shore or taking things and they're extremely motivated and they have been for a while, but it's becoming more urgent. I can feel it. You know, they really want to get out there and make a difference. And an interesting way of communicating your science plus your love of surfing 
is uh, science fiction. I read your book last year. It's a lot of fun. Why don't, why don't you talk about uh, how, how you ended up writing a science fiction novel? I started a blog, which was uh, a way to not only kind of start reaching out in a way that was fun, I, and I really just enjoy writing, but also I, I realized it was helping me learn how to write non-science, which is what I spent my whole life. And that's a big change. So I decided, hey, let's try to reach the world in another way. And science fiction, of course, is popular. And the book is really about the environment and Earth. And it's used by looking at this parallel world that is just being contacted by humans and how we would treat that, which, of course, is not necessarily well. And it's telling us something about our own environmental consciousness, how we treat sentient life, which is encountered on that, and ultimately our values and, and what we need to change. And the focus is on a, a, a woman, a Hawaiian surfer called Sage, and her journey, because at first she doesn't care about anything, but she learns to love this planet and wants to protect it. So it's kind of an environmental consciousness journey that she takes, which I think all of us have taken at various points in our life. And I'm just trying to model that so people can have some idea of how, why that's important, you know, and what the consequence of that is. Well, Sage, Sage wants uh, sponsors, and, and you've got an ocean planet with rideable 100-foot waves. So, uh, so it's a good start, and I can see where your, your background informed it. Yeah, you know, the surfing was really kind of a hook to get in there, but it's also kind of a metaphor for trying to conquer the unconquerable. You know, nobody can conquer the ocean, right? It's no matter who people are, we realize how limitless it is and how we throw ourselves against it. We just have to respect it and, and live with it. And that's what she ultimately learns. But the book also has a lot of science. I mean, I write over 100 papers, astronomy, geology, paleontology, oceanography, and, you know, try to thread that in in an interesting way. People are not only having fun, as you say, reading about surfing and this journey, but also learning a little bit about, uh, you know, exobiology and what life could be like on other planets. I kind of like this planet and really want to do the best we can to keep it um, healthy and improve it. So your labs and your work, you've looked at uh, the state of coral reefs, kelp forest, uh, fisheries, particularly with bottom trawling. What are the areas that you see emerging in terms of uh, work for the marine labs and marine science? Well, as you probably know, there's an awful lot of research on climate change and its related issues. So that's what a lot of what we're doing uh, here in Trinidad and a lot of other labs, particularly ocean acidification. That's something that's not really well understood. The North Coast is a really great place to study that because we have very unique oceanography. So between Cape Mendocino and Cape Blanco in Southern Oregon, uh, we, you know, we don't get continuous upwelling like Oregon does. We get this fluctuating upwelling. And when the upwelling happens, it brings in cold, low, high nutrient, deep ocean water, which is low in pH. So it's more acidic naturally. And so we are kind of seeing naturally on this coast what we might see in the future everywhere. So it's a great way to, to look at how organisms respond. We just think Fisher uh, finished a three-year National Science Foundation-funded study looking at the effects of ocean acidification. And what comes with that is low oxygen, kind of anoxia, and dead zones sometimes um, on juvenile rockfish. And uh, found that really, you know, they're pretty resilient to ocean acidification, but the fish were from the north coast. 
They don't like the low oxygen, though. They can't do well at all. We actually put them in little tunnels, and we they were swimming against the current. Just like a treadmill, we see how long they can swim, and then finally they get tired, give up, and they kind of lay on the ground and <laughs> move around. Uh, and, you know, this didn't, this was all sublethal. It doesn't kill the fish, but it certainly changed their performance. And in the ocean, what that means is they wouldn't be able to escape predators or forage or reproduce nearly as effective. So we just don't know what all these things are going to do. That's the scariest part. And it's not just ocean acidification. It's also temperature. It's also uh, sea level rise. There's a lot of complex things going on simultaneously. And so a lot of studies are trying to tease those things out where they look at three or four different stressors simultaneously. And one of the reasons I came here is not only it, it's not impacted by humans, it, and so we really can get some insights into what it looks like um, and compared to other places, which is, you know, most of California is pretty highly populated, and we are very sparse, as you pointed out in your book, The Golden State. You know, there's just not much up here, and that's great. I mean, Trinidad is, only has a population of 320 people. So it's a, it, yet it was incorporated in 1858 or something. It's really old, but we're right on the water. You know, the fishermen are going out and I really respect them because it is, it's rough out there. It's huge, but yet the crab fisheries are a big part of, you know, this coastline. And so what's really needed to see a really tight relationship between the people and the community and the ocean. They've been dependent on it for many years for a variety of ways. And it's nice to see that kind of interaction. So there is a lot of respect for things up here, but there's also a long history of exploitative fisheries that have had impacts on the ocean. But now we have these marine protected areas, so the kind of everything has kind of shifted to talking about that. A uh, big player in all of this are all the tribes that are up here on the coast, and uh, you know they're wonderful partners, and they have all sorts of traditional ecological knowledge that we're starting to infuse through Humboldt State and through the, some of the management agencies into modern practices. And that's something that's really unique up here as well. And uh, fantastic people to work with uh, and a lot of uh, really important issues that everybody's starting to look at together. And I think that's how we do it together, you know. So with that, I would like to thank you so much for joining us today on the Rising Tide Ocean Podcast. And thank you for all of your work and your insight. And I can't wait to read your book. <laughs> well, thank you. It's been a huge honor to be with both of you today. And I, I really enjoyed talking with you. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with host David Helberg and support from Natasha Benjamin, Ellie Curlow, and myself, Vicki Nichols Goldstein. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by studio Kate May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbar. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from Apple, Google, or Spotify. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy!
Sparky! There you are, good boy, Sparky!